Hi friends, before we jump into today's episode, I want to thank you for choosing to listen to the surprising rebirth of Belief in God. We'll soon be celebrating 500,000 downloads since launch and winning a Zenga prize for podcast journalism. If you're enjoying the series and you'd like to help me reach even more people with thinking faith, can I encourage you to support this podcast? Becoming a silver supporter means you get early access to episodes and bonus content, Gold supporters also get signed books and a monthly catch-up with me on Zoom, if you'd like it. The links to support are with the show notes or visit justinbriley.com. Enjoy today's episode. There's no contradiction between saying that the, the early Christians tried to efface pagan culture. They failed. They, they smashed a lot of temples and they burned a lot of books. We and, only and have. Evidence, hang on a second. What evidence do we have for that? Uh, what, what, well, let me give you an example. We have seven of Aeschylus's plays and we know the titles of 70. And but we, what makes we know you think the names that we don't have them because Christians destroyed them. This is atheist philosopher A.C. Grayling debating historian Tom Holland on whether early Christians trashed antiquity. Well, because uh, the, uh, um, uh, the, the the transmission of these things through uh, antiquity, we know how many of these documents had survived, and then but, we start. But how do we then know we it was Christians who destroyed them? Well, we, we know that Christians destroyed a great deal of the material culture of, uh, of our antiquity. That? Well, I mean, all you have to do is just read about the first couple of decades after 380 under Theodosius the first. But, but, but do we have anything? Whom you don't mention, you don't mention the Theodosian attack okay, on, so let's mention on paganism. The and right anything? up until Is 529 AD. Hold on a second, okay. Tom. You had a long right. go there. The exchange between Grayling and Holland on the big conversation from Premier Unbelievable remains one of the most lively encounters I've ever moderated. Grayling is a respected philosopher and public intellectual and an outspoken critic of Christianity. In the run-up to the debate, Grayling had published The History of Philosophy, which from the first page of the introduction excoriated the church as a break on progress historically. Holland had just published his own magnum opus, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Ever the meticulous historian, Holland repeatedly challenged Grayling to produce actual evidence of an orgy of effacement by early Christians. The idea that uh, there was a systematic campaign by evil Christians to eliminate the, uh, the, 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 the legacy of classical civilization could not be less true. And, 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 and this is so clear and transparent a historical fact that it stupefies me that Antony could even begin to think otherwise. And I think the reason that he thinks otherwise is that it's a myth that he has a huge stake in. It, it is entirely a myth. This is such a basic point, and you would yeah. think that, that this would be a simple thing for him to go and check. This is a myth that essentially is propagated in the 18th century. The, the, the figure who underlies it is, is, is Gibbon with his account that, 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 that uh, the Sarapaeum is destroyed by, by bigoted Christians who, who, who destroy the library. And this is, to put it mildly, not exactly what happened. 
This disagreement on the role of Christians in early antiquity was one among a number of flashpoints between Holland and Grayling as they debated whether Christianity gave us our moral values. Near the end of the show, Grayling, perhaps channeling the spirit of Monty Python's People's Front of Judea, what have the Romans ever done for us, asked Holland a question. I, I would ask Tom this, and this is a, a surprising question, maybe, to nominate for me one thing, just one thing, that Christianity has introduced that doesn't have some source, some parallel, some analogy in, in previous and in other civilizations. One novelty, one innovation in thinking about anything, ethical, metaphysical, anything you like. And I must say, I've racked my brains over this uh, often enough, and I cannot think of one. We'd love to hear if there is one. Do you accept that challenge? Uh, absolutely. I think the, um, the, the ideal of, of lifelong uh, matrimony, I think that's a, a very distinctive Christian concept. I think the, the category of, of what by the 19th century is coming to be categorized as, as homosexuality and heterosexuality. I think they have no precedence. I think the notion of secularism, the idea of there being religions, I think all these are entirely exclusive to uh, Christian civilization. I think the concept of science as it emerges in the 19th century, I think is entirely exclusive to, uh, to, to, to Christian civilization. I think the idea that um, human beings are created in the image of God, that is obviously something that Christians share with uh, with Jews, but that is a, a um, it, it, it gives a degree of dignity to human beings that no other cultural tradition that I'm aware of even remotely approximates to. So I think that all of those are, are essentially what I'm talking in, in giving that is I am talking about what makes Western civilization distinctive. And one of the things that absolutely makes Western civilization distinctive and it's an inheritance of its Christian past is its assumption that its values are universal. This has been fundamental to the way that Christians have understood their faith, that, that it is for all of humanity. And to this day, the heirs of that cultural tradition want to believe that their values are not contingent, but somehow are the property of all humanity. It was a thrilling debate, worth listening to in full. Grayling was resolute that we owed the Greeks, Romans and Enlightenment thinkers most of the thanks for our belief in equality, compassion and human rights. Holland came on, not as a Christian spokesperson, but as a secular historian who believes Grayling's own atheistic bias was stopping him from seeing things objectively. Perhaps Holland's passionate defense of the contribution of Christianity to the West was partly because he himself has gone on a significant journey of coming to see things very differently, as he has discovered just how much we are all shaped by the Christian story. I'm Justin Briley, and throughout my working life, I've been hosting conversations on faith between atheists, agnostics, and believers. In this documentary series, I'm telling the story of why new atheism grew old and secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. I'm speaking to those inside and outside the atheist movement and the many new thinkers beginning a new conversation on the value of faith. Along the way, we'll meet some of those who have found themselves surprised by God as they've made the journey from atheism to Christianity. Welcome to the surprising rebirth of belief in God, episode 10, History Maker, why Tom Holland 
changed his mind about Christ. Just before we jump into the rest of today's show, one of the voices you'll hear on this podcast is friend of the show, Glenn Scrivener, a brilliant Christian communicator. Glenn has recently put together an online course called 321. It's an introduction to Christianity that's imaginative, stimulating and assumes no prior knowledge. If you've been thinking about exploring faith for yourself or if you want something to share with your friends, 321 is just the thing. Glenn presents eight video-led sessions which are beautifully shot and animated. I found it a really engaging and practical way of connecting the big ideas in this podcast to our everyday life. I'm already thinking of people I can share it with. See for yourself at 321course.com slash JB. It's completely free. Just start a free account with your email and a password and you're in. There's no spam, no hidden costs. Go to 321course.com slash JB and discover life according to Jesus. Where are we? This is Kohol Brian. Same year, same time. But in this universe, Christianity never existed, which means the dark ages of scientific repression never occurred, and thus humanity is a thousand years more advanced. Ergo, muscular, genetically perfect pigs. That was Family Guy's Stewie Griffin riffing on the idea that if it weren't for Christendom's dark ages, we'd all be better off by now. It's an idea that has a lot of serious proponents. Christianity was, was there and largely unopposed and had all sorts of power for 10 plus centuries. So nothing particularly great came out of the Dark Ages. So I want to look at three... I wonder if that's why we call them the Dark, the dark Ages. Ages. That's right. <laughs> so when Christianity ruled the world, it, was, it really showed its true nature. People were persecuted, knowledge was destroyed, wealth and power mattered over all else, and it was the Dark Ages. And that's a failure of Christianity. In this version of history, championed by Grayling and the New Atheists, Christianity is perceived as having had a retrograde effect across the board. According to them, science, health and ethics were all hamstrung by Christianity as it ushered in the Dark Ages and kept things dark for a long time. Only once the shackles of religion began to be thrown off during the Age of Enlightenment did rationalists, secular philosophers and scientific pioneers get progress back on track. But this popular narrative has increasingly been challenged by historians both within and outside the Christian fold. And this idea has permeated our popular culture for the best part of 150 years. This is Australian writer Tim O'Neill, who's a non-believer himself, but regularly critiques internet sceptics via his popular website and podcast, History for Atheists. And so as a result, you get things like uh, the, the cartoon The Family Guy, where at one point Stewie and, and uh, Brian the dog um, find themselves, go through some portal and find themselves in what looks like some distant future. There's flying cars and 
amazingly futuristic looking buildings. And, uh, and Stewie says, oh, we're in the future. And Brian says, no, we're actually in the present. But it's the present where Christianity didn't exist and didn't hold back science for a thousand years during the Dark Ages. Now, it's a funny joke, but it's based on a, a shared understanding in popular culture that that's something that actually happened. So why is it so deep in popular culture? Um, I think it's, it's, it is because it's a nice, neat little story. It's, it's a nice, neat little story because it's a beautiful little fairy tale that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has good guys and bad guys. It has a happy ending, and we are the good guys in the story. We, modern people who are wise and rational and scientific, uh, realize that people in the past were stupid and ignorant, and they were kept that way by religion, which is bad, and so now we've realized that that's not true, um, we've got science and we've got we've got progress and we've got advances in technology. So aren't we smart? So it's a it's a most comforting story about well we're advanced, so everyone in the past must have been less advanced because they were stupid, which makes us smart. So on a psychological level, it works. On a narrative level, it works because it's a nice story. But I think the other reason why it has such a uh, a, a grip on popular conceptions misconception of history in the English-speaking world as the English-speaking world is predominantly Protestant. O'Neill says that an anti-Catholic prejudice has often framed how the Protestant West viewed the Middle Ages and that many of his fellow atheists have now bought into a myth primarily perpetuated by the 18th century historian Edward Gibbon. Gibbon's highly influential History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, published in 1776, had laid much of the blame for the loss of classical civilization at the feet of the church. This is Andrew Wilson, author of Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West, speaking on the Post-Christianity podcast with Glenn Scrivener. Edward Gibbon published The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and he's now using Middle Age as the Christian period between the ancient world and the modern which would, we would now call the Enlightenment world. He, right. he wasn't yet calling it that, but that's the idea. So what, they, what he's done is he's taken the shape of the story that he got from the Protestants, which is you have early church, Catholicism bad, mm -hmm. Protestantism good, and he's transposed it into an Enlightenment story that we would now all recognize, which is ancient world of paganism, right. sunny, happy, chipper, yep. then yep. you know medieval Christendom, Ooh, the, and the, then the storm clouds have come right. in, and then it's all dark and dreary, all that stuff. Castle, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I dare say, and then the modern world in which you know light, science, reason, and all the rest. But what he's what Gibbon has done, and many others like him, but Gibbon was particularly good at it, is to to take a Christian shape of the story, the Protestant shape of story, and just change the characters. Yes, and it's a very reassuring narrative because yes. it means that people like you you and me and all our neighbors and friends are on the right side of history. We're right. sitting here now today going, we're actually the heroes of this story. Right. And the bad guys are the ones who right. tried to destroy, you know, reason and understanding. And we're the, we're the light ones. In fact, almost every modern scholar of the period now acknowledges that far from being an era of intellectual regression and superstition, the Dark Ages were a period in which art, agriculture and learning blossomed in ecclesiastical centres of learning established by the church. And it was the monks of the early centuries that we should thank for preserving almost all the copies of ancient literature and philosophy that continued to be the bedrock of classical education and learning into the Middle Ages. 
Another influential secular historian, Rodney Stark, who passed away in 2022, spent much of his life arguing that Christianity provided the seed for the advances of the Enlightenment and modern age. Indeed, in this archive interview with the Public Christianity podcast, he says the modern secular notion of progress is itself a Christian concept. Everybody outside the Christian West believed that the world was incomprehensible because it, it was a, an eternal mystery that you can meditate on it, but it was pointless to try to understand it because it was ununderstandable. The Christians, on the contrary, believed that it could be understood. Uh, some of the very earliest church fathers are saying, we don't understand this today, but we will. We'll understand, and sometimes I was things about what God meant and whatnot, but, but the whole idea of progress was in fact a Christian ideal. The idea that, that 20 years from now things will be better and we'll know more. Uh, we all take that for granted. But in fact, in most of the world, particularly the ancient world, you would have been laughed at if you said such a thing. It just turns out it was true. The Christians were right. The universe could be understood. But even if modern skeptics were to revise their view of history and the so-called Dark Ages, and even admit that Christianity seeded our modern values, shouldn't we abandon their religious origins and let science and reason take the wheel from now on? That's the fundamental argument of Harvard professor Steven Pinker in books such as The Better Angels of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now. I put the question about whether we now need religion to Glenn Scrivener. There are people who say we can now dispense with that, okay, because we, we're kind of on the trajectory and we've got far better tools for delivering it now than, than religion, which, you know. So what do you say to that? Because, you know, Pink will say, it's, you know, the progress that we're seeing is it's got nothing to do with Christianity. Interestingly, you know, in, in those books, he quotes from the Bible, you know, and he quotes the, you know, the arc of the moral universe as long as it bends towards justice. And then he says... When Martin Luther King said that, or um, you know, when, when that was first said in the 19th century, um, we didn't have the scientific tools to test that thesis. Now we do, and so I'm just I'm just bringing um, empirical analysis mm. to the the belief that Christians had without evidence. Um, and, and then he starts quoting things like, you know, we, we are beating our swords into plowshares, just as the ancient prophets said, and, and he talks about, you know, the, the reduction in, in violence and, um, and so I, I, there's a sense in which I think Christians can just embrace a lot of what Stephen Pinker says and kind of say, yes, isn't it interesting <laughs> um, that on many metrics, things are getting better. Isn't that interesting? Because there were predictions about that written thousands of years ago, and they seem to be coming to pass. Um, but, but you don't want to go the whole way with Stephen Pinker because you've got to ask the question, well, by what standard are we measuring progress like is is our moral character improved are, are we are we are we better human beings is 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 the 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 fiber within us you know more more moral i guess and it goes back i guess to that question of well why why are we aiming for a culture in which the poorest and the weakest are looked after well and, and do have good outcomes and everything else if that's right. not a that wasn't a given for the Romans and the Greeks and so on. No, exactly. And 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 then I would bring you know his other quote about about saying if you just think that sacrifice for your tribe 
is a virtue, then you might go with fascism. And you might think that human rights are the ultimate form of selfishness. Um, he weaves into his arguments in places, and I talk about this in the book, he weaves into his arguments certain smuggled-in assumptions that sound very much to me like the image of God in all people, <laughs> sound very much like the inviolable dignity and worth of, of, of all humans. Um, and, and again, I would just want to say those are brilliant humanistic beliefs and sign me up as a humanist, but I don't think, I don't think you can get there from secularism. I think humanism works because God the human has come and given an inviolable dignity and worth to, to, to humans. But I don't think secular humanism works because to say that we're biological survival machines and we should be kind is, is a moral leap we're unjustified to make. There's a the bit of theology going on in between those two things. <laughs> exactly. There's, there's an invisible bit of theology and we're just, we're just not good at investigating how theological we are right. and how very Christian-ish those theological assumptions are. Two of the best-known historians in the world today are Dominic Sandbrook and Tom Holland, hosts of the hugely popular The Rest is History podcast. One of these nights your door will open with a great noise as a jealous person, and you will find me in your arms. A thousand loving kisses. Mwah, 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 mwah. Oh, Bonaparte. Oh, God almighty. So... <laughs> Dominic. <laughs> I had to watch that. that they was... just have to listen to it. I had to watch that. <laughs> that was Napoleon Bonaparte writing to Josephine. Alongside friendly banter and some dodgy impressions, the two friends have enthralled millions of listeners with their recounting of history's most significant events. Tom Holland was already a best-selling historical author of books chronicling the Roman, Greek and Islamic empires, who often appeared in documentaries, TV and radio shows. Hello and welcome to the interview on France 24. My guest is British historian Tom Holland. We turn to historian and author Tom Holland. This is his Tick of the Week. Tom, thank you for coming back. Pleasure, Dan, as ever. Well. I mean, I'm not alone. I was not alone in thinking you were a bit eccentric. Tom Holland, the genius writer, the man who's beguiled millions of readers over the world, desperate they all were for you to finish your massive task of your lifetime, which is writing the great history of the Roman Empire in the West. And yet you took all this time out to write this kind of crazy book about Christianity. I was not alone in thinking you were crazy. This is TV presenter Dan Snow speaking to Holland on the History Hit podcast. Over the process of the past few years, um, I've been recalibrating exactly where it is that I morally, ethically, culturally come from and essentially where the whole of, of Western society comes from. Uh, and I've come to the conclusion rather like someone looking, you know, can't quite identify an itch on the back and then you find it and it's really great when you scratch it. I've come to the conclusion that essentially I am Christian. I'm not a, a classically Greek or Roman. I, I am essentially Christian and I think that you are, even though you might deny that. I think the whole of the society, Western society that we've grown up is. And I think essentially we are all goldfish and the water in which we are swimming is Christian, which is not to say that we all are, are confessional Christians. We may not 
believe that the Lord Jesus Christ rose on the third day. But if we think of, of Christianity as a kind of civilization, a matrix, a, a way of seeing and understanding the world. I had personally encountered Tom Holland earlier on in his career after he wrote a popular piece for The New Statesman outlining the way he had begun to rethink his secular assumptions, an article that would eventually be fleshed out into the 600 pages of Dominion. In this conversation with Holland on Premier Unbelievable, prior to the publication of the book, he was already expressing why his time living in the sandals of the Greeks and Romans had begun to have a profound effect upon him. Cicero's great contemporary Caesar is, by some accounts, slaughtering a million Gauls and enslaving another million in the cause of, of boosting his political career. And far from feeling in any way embarrassed about this, he's kind of promoting it. And yeah. so when he holds his triumph, people are going through the streets of Rome carrying billboards, boasting about how many people he's killed. And this is, this is a really terrifyingly alien world. And the more you look at it, the more you realise that it is built on systematic exploitation. Mm -hmm. um, so the entire economy is founded on... Slave labour. Right. The the sexual economy is founded on the absolute right of free Roman males to have sex with anyone that they want, any way that they like. Mm. And in almost every way, this is a world that is unspeakably cruel to our way of thinking. Mm. And so this worried me more and more. <laughs> and it was kind of like I was thinking, well, you know, where... I'm clearly not, as I'd vaguely imagined, the heir of the Greeks and the Romans in any way, really. And and so where am I coming from? And it was like a kind of itch, you know, you get right. on your back and you, yeah, think, yeah. you can't find it. <laughs> and this was then enhanced for me by then writing a book about the about late antiquity and the emergence of Islam from the the, the late religious mm. con the, the the religious and imperial context mm. of late antiquity and again finding in islam a, a, a profound quality of the alien that you know there were aspects of islam that were very familiar but there were many aspects of it that again seemed deeply deeply alien and i began to realize that actually in in almost every way i am christian in almost every way i am a christian as holland has said it's not that he was claiming to believe the supernatural claims of Christianity, but that whether we think of ourselves as believers, modern people think and act the way we do because of the water we're swimming in. The, the core thesis is that we are goldfish swimming in Christian waters. And we don't recognise that we are in a goldfish bowl. This is Holland speaking more recently to me and Belle Tyndall on the Reenchanting podcast. We in the West tend to assume that things that are actually very culturally contingent, a product of the 2000 years of, of the Christian revolution, the risk is assuming that it's just the way things are, that, that we do things because that's what human nature is, that, there are, that, that our understanding of what is the right thing to do is, um, is inherent within us, that there's a kind of inherent morality. Um, but it's not just in the dimension of morals or ethics. It's the way that we comprehend society. It's the way that we understand sexuality. It's the way that we understand gender. It's almost every aspect of our lives is shaped by the weathering effects of Christianity. So that even, even concepts that seem to come from a pre-Christian period, we interpret them through a Christian prism. 
Did you know this podcast is also a book? The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again is available now. Historian Tom Holland says Justin has had a ringside seat watching the great debates on religion and reports on them with learning, subtlety and grace. Now, don't tell anyone, but you'll actually get the first chapter free in your email inbox if you subscribe to my newsletter. Or if you want to just go ahead and order, signed editions are available from my website. Or even better, you'll get both my books personally signed when you become a gold supporter of this podcast. So for the newsletter, the book or to support, check the links in the show notes or visit justinbriley.com. I introduced Tom Holland in an earlier episode of this podcast as one of a number of new thinkers who, in the wake of the rise and fall of new atheism, are reconsidering the value of Christianity in the modern age. Holland's particular contribution has been to remind many of his secular peers that they owe their morality and values to the Christian revolution of 2000 years ago. In a previous episode, we heard how Ayan Hersey Ali attributed much of her recent embrace of Christianity to the influence of Holland. Dominion itself is a magisterial piece of historical writing. The central argument is that, despite the protestations of modern secularists like Pinker and Grayling, the Western world's commitment to human equality, dignity and value is intrinsically Christian in nature. Holland makes his case by galloping through 2,000 years of history, from the Greek and Roman empires right up to the Beatles and the modern Me Too movement. Historical vignettes from across the centuries set the stage for the revolutions in politics, religion, science and culture that are themselves aftershocks of the Christian revolution of the first century. Needless to say, the faults and misdemeanors of the church down the ages are also laid bare, Yet, time and again, Holland returns to the molten heart of Christianity, the claim that God himself died the death of a slave. That radical idea, says Holland, laid the foundation for the abolition of slavery, the modern welfare state, and even the freedom for people to reject religion in the modern world. Ironically, even modern atheism owes its origins to Christianity. But where has this journey taken Holland himself? Having grown up with home life in a traditional Church of England background, Holland says the dimmer switch on faith had turned down by his teenage and undergraduate years. I sat down to talk with him about it. It, it, it wasn't like I suddenly kind of went all Dawkins and, and thought I'm rejecting religion, or, or indeed even that I went Byronic or Promethean and kind of define, you know, the, the tyrant in the heavens or anything like that. It, it, it was just that it became of less interest to me. And I read Nietzsche quite a, a formative, you know, kind of 18, 19, when it really hits you hard. Yeah. Um, and, and remember thinking, yeah, actually, because it really did articulate quite a lot about what I disliked about Christianity, that it did seem a bit wet and kind of annoying and po-faced and going on about being kind to poor people. Mm -hmm. I just wasn't particularly interested in that. I kind of liked emotionally mm. the, the, the power that was expressed yeah. by these kind of monstrous figures from antiquity. Mm. 
and there was there was a kind of an appeal in in the hot you know the horrible qualities of it the glamorous qualities of it um it was a kind of naive response as we heard in a recent episode after graduation holland went on an unlikely journey from writing vampire novels to writing about ancient history and this was when he began to experience a deep sense of how different the world he inhabited was from the values of the greco-roman world but it wasn't just ancient history making him reevaluate the culture he had grown up in. The, the frameworks, the moral frameworks, the ideological frameworks that governed the opinions of pretty much everyone I knew was so accepted that I realized we weren't thinking them through. And I, I think it was much easier to do that in the 90s when they weren't under particular threat. But another thing was the sudden intrusion of Islam. Mm -hmm. onto the public stage. It seemed to me that there was a kind of tension there. Everyone that I knew and everyone that I was reading was saying, you know, 9-11 or whatever, it's nothing to do with Islam. And when they talked about Islam, the kind of thing that they were describing was a kind of version of the Church of England. It, it, it was something muted, mm. secularized, safe, comfortable, absolutely within the context of British multiculturalism. And, and people would say, um, you know, anyone who thinks that that Islam is not compatible with um, a secular democracy is basically a racist. That seemed to me an insane thing to say, because the the, the kind of culturally supremacist thing to say was that, that that you could absorb even Islam, this incredibly rich, ancient, sophisticated, various civilization, within the distinctive cultural frameworks. Of, of Britain in in the early 21st century. I mean, it seemed an, an amazing form of cultural arrogance. Mm. So I became, I, be I became kind of interested in, in, in the degree to which Islam was actually much richer, much more complex than, 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 than people wanted to acknowledge, that therefore there might absolutely be reasons that, that derive from Islamic history and tradition that might explain 9-11, just as it might also explain all kinds of other traditions, likewise, that might make um, the assumptions of, of, of secularists in, in, in 21st century Britain uncomfortable. And actually, it was the whole thing about, about the, the idea of the secular that then I became interested in, because I, I, it, it, it's evident that the assumption of church and state, you know, there isn't a phrase, mosque and state, the way in which this was discussed, that, that the understanding of Islam was, was basically a Christian one. So I became, so I wrote a book, Millennium, about basically the origins of where did this idea of the sector come from? What was it that that made Western society qualitatively different from the much richer civilization of, of, of Islam in the 10th and 11th century? It both seemed to me so obvious and yet so, it wasn't anything that anybody seemed ready to accept. And I wrote an article about it to publicize Millennium for, for the New Statesman that provoked an absolutely furious reaction and I'd written similar articles for Rubicon and, and Persian Fire, in which you know you, you you made the argument that what you're writing about is incredibly important. But when I wrote this, the, the response was vituperative, and I realised that this is a live issue in a way that talking about the legacy of Greece or Rome is. Yeah. Greece and Rome are effectively dead. Nobody really yeah. cares. Yeah. But but if you if you if you say that actually the ideal of the secular is something that is distinctive to Western Christendom and emerges from distinctive Christian theological assumptions, people go absolutely batshit because they don't want to think that. Mm -hmm. And so that's the kind of the, the, the particular rat I followed down the hole. 
uh, both, both writing about Islam and then with the minion. Well, and, and obviously, as, as you followed that up with in the shadow of the sword and so on, I, I, I mean, did that only serve to further uh, elucidate how very different Islam is from Christianity in the? Yeah, I felt this line was really, really different, and I, I yeah. spent a lot. You know, I'm not, I'm not an, uh, I'm not a Muslim. I don't speak Arabic. It was kind of terra incognita. So I spent, a, I spent years and years immersed in, in mm. reading about Islam and and studying it and and kind of thinking about why I found it strange and an alien. I mean, there were lot, there was lots in it that I, I found familiar. But again, I realised that what I found familiar in it was basically derived from from Christianity. Yeah. Mm. And and what I found alien was 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 because it was different to to Christianity, and you know that kind of sharpened the feeling that I then had when I wrote Dynasty, which was about the Julia Claudians, um, and and again I felt that you know write, writing about Nero in particular, that the 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 power of Nero and why he has this this kind of impact on the Romans and then into subsequent generations. Is that he was able to dramatize what was incredibly dark within Greek myth. So he mm. kills his mother. Because that's what tragic heroes do. Mm. Uh, yeah. And, you know, so, but, so I think the combination of writing, I mean, written about Islam and then writing about, about that kind of peculiarly brutal form of self dramatization, which even the Romans found too much really sharpened for me yeah. the sense of what Christianity was about mm. and the degree to which I was actually in, in almost every way, all my assumptions and everything Christian. Holland's writing on late antiquity and the emergence of the Islamic Empire for his book In the Shadow of the Sword and his accompanying TV documentary Islam, The Untold Story, which questioned aspects of the historicity of Muhammad's life and the origins of the Quran, led to intense controversy and even death threats from radical Islamists. As a liberal Westerner committed to concepts like freedom of speech and expression, Holland found himself again reminded of how peculiar his outlook was to many cultures, both past and present. Holland is also willing to upset some of his fellow secular liberals with his claim that they owe their humanist beliefs to Christianity. Not to the point of death threats, the odd Twitter spat tends to be the worst he receives from them, but that's only a further sign of how Christian they are, says Holland. But where has all this taken the author at a personal level? I, I've, I've, I've come to realise that beliefs I hold that are really quite important. So the idea that all human beings uh, have a, have a fundamental equality, that differences of, of race or gender or class fundamentally shouldn't matter, that human beings have rights, that all of these are have no grounding whatsoever in objective reality. That that most people for most of history have 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 not believed in this. That it's perfectly possible to imagine them not believing it in the future. That that therefore to 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 believe them is to take a leap of faith. And that being so, I have to ask myself: Well, I, you know, do, do I actually believe this stuff? You know, what's to stop me becoming a nihilist or a white supremacist? Or you know, I mean, yeah, fundamentally, do, do do I actively believe this? Do I take a leap of faith, a commitment to it? Or am I just believing it because rather lazily I've been brought up with it and everybody else believes it, so I'm just swimming with the flow. If I'm going to take a leap of faith, isn't it actually aren't they actually rather boring? Kind of comes back to that idea of of things being 
being boring, I think is actually quite important to me. I, I find abstract ideals, abstract principles quite dull. And Christianity is the, not only the source of this, but the explanations that it gives for why we believe these things are infinitely more dramatic and interesting and kind of beautiful and complex. Mm. And the experience of researching Dominion meant that I had to read an enormous amount of Christian writing from uh, an enormous array of sources and over an immense span of time. And I've, I found the process of doing this very, very seductive. I, I found them incredibly impressive. And every time I read them, I would I would kind of be seduced by them. So whether it was reading Oregon or Ambrose or Calvin, I, fa- I found the varied range of responses to the way that Christianity was mediated by all these different figures, it kind of enthused me. And when I, when I came to, to, to the 17th century, the way in which a belief that the spirit was speaking served to animate and transform the whole Atlantic world in which culturally I was situated. So Anglo-American civilization and led to the abolition of slavery, led to the conviction that slavery was wrong kind of breathed its 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 spirit into all kinds of strange expressions. This I, I recognize actually this is this is what this is what we live in. This is what people think. They have the spirit in them. They just don't realize it. And I I don't know whether I believe that literally or not. But I mean, you know when I look at the at the, at the moment at what's going on, there seems a kind of Pentecostal force to it. Mm. But it, it it seems diminished by the fact that that people don't know why it is that they're arguing for what they're arguing. Mm. They just assume. Whether it's a belief in the intrinsic equality of all people or a belief in the resurrection of Jesus, I guess we all express a measure of faith in our lives in things that we can't prove scientifically, but that may make sense to us for a variety of other reasons. We'll hear more from this personal conversation with Holland about his evolving journey including a transformative moment in a vandalised ancient church in Iraq in a forthcoming episode. For now, I wanted to hear what others think of Holland's influence. Elizabeth Oldfield is host of The Sacred Podcast. I hadn't realised quite how enormous the rest is history podcast is. In terms of kind of a cultural apologetic happening, someone who is just smart and funny in public who also happens to be warm towards the contribution of the Christian faith. It just shows how far we've moved past the new atheist moment. And I think we shouldn't undervalue um, that kind of very gentle uh, changing of the social imaginary. Paul van der Klee. Bob Holland is someone who is revolutionizing our story of ourselves. He's always longed to live in the world he reads about and in sort of a Tolkien-esque way, is wooing us to join him. Journalist Bethel McGrew says that she is seeing many intellectuals go on a journey where they find themselves stranded on a narrow strip of land. The ground behind them, of their former atheist secularism, has fallen away. They can't go back. But the way forward to the other side seems to involve a leap of faith too. Um, I think Holland is similar to Murray in that he inherits 
the heritage of the Church of England. He has that sense of wishing that it were true, wishing that he could believe, but once again, feeling like he can't go back, like the, the modernist bridge has been burned, but still recognizing that Christianity is the water we swim in. It undergirds the humanist project. It undergirds all the things that, uh, all the values that liberals take for granted, the values that secular humanists want to take for granted. Howard wants to say, oh, no, you don't. You know, you, you can't just plunder Christianity and, and run off with the spoils. You have to recognize where it came from. Howard will still admit that he can't, he can't quite get to the point of saying he thinks that Christianity is actually true. And he sort of recognizes that that's a conundrum, just like Murray recognizes that that's a conundrum, just like Peterson does. So he feels like the most that he can do is sort of restore it to a place of seriousness in the public conversation. And I think there's value to that. It may be a limited value, but we shouldn't underestimate the value of hearing people talk about Christianity without making fun of it. That alone is powerful. It, uh, it, it, has, it has an impact, it changes the cultural temperature. A national billboard campaign has arrived in northwest Arkansas and it's almost guaranteed to catch your attention. Our own Marcy Manley joins us now live in Benton County with much more on the controversial words. Marcy? Well, Matt, the billboard you see behind me is a godless message, according to the United Coalition of Reason. The group sponsored three local, free-thinking, unbelieving groups to put up the billboard while forming a branch in the region. Coalition members say the message is aimed at other atheist and agnostic people to let them know they're not alone. But it's also intended to alert traditional religious groups that other beliefs exist. And believe it or not, members of the coalition and Christians both think the billboard helps spread their separate messages. The message for the sign is to our people. And, and I, I, I suppose also to let people know that, you know, people can be good that don't believe in God. In the late 2000s, following the advertising success of the atheist bus campaign in London, other secular campaigning groups around the world began using billboards to get their message across, often based on the slogan that you can be good without God. So we hope that when people do see that billboard, if somebody's driving by and they have actually self-selected themselves out of religious superstition, that they realize that there's a community out there of people who have come to exactly the same conclusion that they have, you know, that there is no supernatural power out there, and that because of that, they might realize that, in, that we really have just each other. The questions of how to leave a good and moral life are questions that everybody has to deal with, not just people that have theistic beliefs and truly you know without being too confrontational you know it seems to a lot of us that if you're coming to the conclusion that I need to behave in a certain way because there's a magic man that lives in the sky that wants me to you know we would a lot of us would say you really need to re-examine your premises and the reason why you're doing things these advertising campaigns styled themselves on the arguments of new atheists who wanted to make clear that good behaviour doesn't come from being religious. It, you know, if murder is really wrong, or the Holocaust is really wrong, or slavery is really wrong, um, why do we need God to tell us that? I mean, if, if, if those moral principles are out there and God is just telling us what it is, then why, why 
do we need the middleman? Just tell us the reasons why it's wrong and okay. If we, even if we granted that, that our respect for individual rights, say, came from a Judeo-Christian tradition, it doesn't mean that it can only come from, from there or that it even is best gotten from there. Uh, and, I, and I would say that it, it actually hasn't come principally from there. I invite you to the thought experiment. If it could be shown to you that the figure of the Nazarene was in fact, as we believe, entirely mythical, would you really look at your neighbor differently? As others have pointed out in previous episodes, it's not that Christians say you can't be good without believing in God. Thinkers like historian Sarah Irving Stonebreaker told of their keen moral beliefs during their atheist years. The question was whether belief in such moral precepts made sense in an ultimately meaningless universe and in the absence of a transcendent moral lawgiver. It seems to me that it's very difficult to believe in a moral universe without a God behind it. But the answer to Christopher Hitchens' hypothetical question of whether we would look at our neighbours differently in the absence of the historical Christ is a different one. And I think the answer is actually yes, we probably would, because it's a question of how we actually arrived at the moral beliefs we hold. And in the world that existed before Christ's teachings and the movement led by his followers that came to transform it, there was a very different standard by which people were viewed and treated. In the ancient world, slavery was an unquestioned and intrinsic part of life and economics. Some people could be the sexual property of those who ranked above them. The lives of women and children were relatively cheap. The point of Holland's argument, and I wish Hitchens was still here to debate it with him, is that Christianity was the catalyst for changing all of those aspects of ancient culture into our modern Western beliefs about equality, consent and freedom. Of course, many secularists, Hitchens included, have objected to various aspects of Christianity's own record when it comes to delivering a world of equality and freedom. Historian John Dixon, author of Bullies and Saints, An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History, told me that we shouldn't ignore the realities of Christendom's failings, especially after Christians had gained state power after the 4th century. They behaved badly. They, they got involved in torture you know, pretty early, 6th century. They were torturing people. Um, they supported armies and violence post-Constantine. Um, they began to push unbelievers around. In fact, in the 390s, um, banned going to pagan worship, so they sort of shut down mm. pluralism. Uh, interestingly, they didn't do that back when Constantine became a Christian. It was a whole generation later, two generations later, that they did that. Okay, so they did some bad things. Oh, I totally admit that. But actually, in the 4th century, they had the the only real charitable services, services in the Roman Empire. They started the first hospitals, and within 500 years there were thousands of hospitals, all of them run by Christians, all of them run by the church. Um, they were the only people um, trying to do something about infanticide. Um, Greeks and Romans thought nothing of leaving a deformed infant or a girl, um, you know, exposing that child. Christians preached against it, where there is some evidence that Christians gathered up infants and cared for them. Um, so the question is, 
which is truer to the founder? I'm not denying that Christians have done bad things. But when they do bad things, they're just being human. The Christians didn't invent torture, warfare, and bigotry. The Romans were doing just fine on all those counts before the Christians came along. But the Romans didn't have charities and hospitals and orphanages for abandoned children. That is the unique contribution of Christianity. So, so I, th- I want to say to the, the honest explorer, what do you think is the unique gift of Christianity to our world? It can't be violence. That's been everywhere. But it is charity. It is humility. It is compassion. It is equality. These things didn't come from Greece and Rome or Babylon or Egypt. They came out of a peculiarly Christian culture. And I use the analogy of a beautiful tune. You know, when you hear Bach's cello suites played poorly, you might question Bach's ability. But if you hear it played by Yo-Yo Ma, it's sublime. And I think of Jesus' impact, not just his teaching, but his his death and his resurrection. You know, the, the story of his self-giving for the world. That's the beautiful tune. And sometimes Christians have played it beautifully perfectly in tune and other times they've gone way off key but we can tell it's way off key by looking again at Jesus Mm -hmm. so I hope ultimately a genuine account of Christian history will lead people to have a listen to the beautiful tune again As we heard in recent episodes, one of Christopher Hitchens' great friends, Ayan Hersey Ali, has recently changed her mind on the value of Christian faith. As Glenn Scrivener put it, she has been Tom Holland-pilled. Scrivener has himself taken some of Holland's big themes and delivered them in a remarkably accessible format in his own award-winning book, The Air We Breathe, How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress and Equality. So I'm so I'm from Australia originally, and um, I always notice when I fly back into Sydney how sweet the air smells. This is Glenn Scrivener speaking to me and Bell Tyndall on the Reenchanting podcast, and it's because of the eucalyptus trees. There's so many, so many gum trees. They're just mentholating the air. It's mm-hmm. like a cough mixture carried upon the breeze nice. the whole time. In but you never notice that, like in in Australia, no. you say, "Oh, the the air's so sweet smelling." Isn't mm-hmm. what are you talking yeah. about? Um, and it's just really an, an analogy for, for the ways in which the atmosphere around us is invisible to us, but it is all pervading and it completely sustains us. And I think our moral values are like that. Mm. Um, you don't really recognize how odd you are, how strange you are until you come out of your culture and visit a different culture. And then you're suddenly, oh my goodness, they do things differently here. Just a simple example, you, you, you go to somebody else's Christmas and you know how Christmas runs, and these people are getting it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and you never thought you were traditional. Mm. You never thought you were set in your ways until mm. you went to somebody else's Christmas, and they kept getting Christmas wrong, right? And and we need to do that with all kinds of moral imagination and intuitions and, and just the values by which we live our lives. We think it is natural, obvious, and universal to have things like human rights. We think it's obvious, natural, and universal to have a, a certain compassion ethic that says the best society is the one that, that stands up for the least and the last and the lost and the marginalized. Mm-hmm. And all, all these sorts of things which we, we consider to be utterly natural. Mm-hmm. 
completely the air we breathe. What I want to do is take us out of our bubble and take us to non-Christian, but in particular pre-Christian civilizations and show us that what we think of as natural and obvious is nothing of the sort. And the ways in which we have adopted these values has come through the Jesus Revolution, aka Christianity. Most people in the West believe in human rights, but human rights don't exist objectively. I mean, they're, they're as fantastical as believing in angels. This is Tom Holland in discussion with Peter Robinson on the Uncommon Knowledge podcast, spelling out why our belief in human rights is a thoroughly Christian-filtered view of reality. You know, their origins are very specifically rooted in Christian theology. It's, it's, it's formulated by the lawyers who are in the wake of the great revolution of the 11th and 12th century are trying to construct a fabric of framework of law for the Christian people. And they look to the scriptures and they see that Christ teaches that those who are rich should um, you know, give shelter and food and water and clothing to the poor. And they deduce from that the instinct that the poor therefore have rights to these things. And this sets in train this incredibly fertile notion the human beings have rights. Now, people today are very reluctant to face up to the idea that this is a very culturally contingent idea rooted in Christian theology, medieval Catholic theology. And so they say, well, you'll find uh, the you know, human rights that's in China or Greece or Rome or whatever, but it isn't. And I think that um, what I have found meditating and reflecting on the, inher the incredible inheritance of Christian theology and practice and liturgy and all kinds of things is that I want to believe in the things that I believe in as a secular humanist. I want to believe in human rights. And if I can believe in that, there are times where I think, well, I might as well be hanged for a, for a sheep as a lamb. If I can believe in human rights, then why can't I believe in angels? Tom Holland went on to explain why even modern atheists who condemn Christendom for its misdemeanours in the past do so, ironically, on the basis of Christian morality. I have found the experience of, of, of immersing myself in the history of Christianity and the examples of Christian history often to be unsettling. You know, it often is. But I think, why do I, even when I'm unsettled by Christian history, I realise that it's for Christian reasons. If, if I'm, if I'm that, unsettled, so if I'm unsettled by so, the Inquisition, it's yeah. because they are killing innocent, you know, it's, it's powerful people killing innocent, an in, innocent person. And, you know, the, the, why do I, why the, am I revolting The cruelty by of that? the ancient world, well, well, the, 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 the Greco-Romans would not have worried about those same types of events well, in the as, way as, we do. as Dostoevsky, you know, in yes. his great, yes. great story about the Inquisitor, yeah. Christ, you know, if, if you as an atheist are enshrine the Inquisition as a model of something horrific. It's for Christian reasons. It's because you are, you, are, you are shaped by a culture that has had an innocent person put to death by a state apparatus. And, and so therefore, I feel that my, the, the, the kind of the bundle of my instincts, my beliefs, my presumptions are generated by this incredibly mysterious Christian inheritance. And I am very, very much, I'm very open to Accepting that there is a strangeness there that I don't want to deny.
Glenn Scrivener says that the reason modern people are so unaware of the surprisingly theological nature of their moral beliefs is because 2,000 years of Christian history has thoroughly shaped our instincts in ways we barely register today. We've got a thousand years of crucifixions, you know, in the National Art Gallery that, that are just, this is, this is what we've been meditating on as a society. And it has shaped all the stories, it has shaped all the moral values, that shaped all your um, beliefs around child rearing, around education. It's, it's shaped all of that so that even if you're not at the source of things in church hearing the Jesus story, that story just pervades everything. But, says Scrivener, without the Christian story at its root, the moral fruits of the West could one day wither and die, and more and more people are starting to notice that. The reason why we're waking up to how Christianized our values have become is because of the receding influence of Christianity on our views. And now there's, there's more of a kind of a, a free-for-all. Um, in terms of which way our society goes and who is in charge of that. And so the ferocity of the culture wars kind of wake us up to the fact that we do have these deeply embedded, um, these deeply embedded intuitions, but intuitions are not enough when you're actually trying to have a conversation with somebody else. They need to say, you know, you need to be able to justify them, to ground them. And simply to say, well, hashtag be kind you start to say, well, no, but why? Like, what, what, is, what is underneath all this? And so I am noticing definitely that people are starting to say things just in regular conversation. They are saying things like, well, it's all come from Christianity anyway, hasn't it? Uh, a, a guy at the school gates, a dad of a friend of my daughter's, um, just said that to me the other day. He, he just said, gosh, it, it all comes from Christianity, doesn't it? Um, I've never really read the Bible. Where should I start? You know? Um, and, and another guy in the town where I live is, is, has just said to me, um, it's, it's all biblical, isn't it? Like, it, like the Bible has built, built the world. Um, what time is church? You know, like, like, there are about five or six sentences in between those two sentences, and he still hasn't come yet. But I think, I think there is something in the water that, that people are recognizing. Um, we've run out of our story. There isn't that framework overarching us anymore. We're all into vibes, and we're very strongly into our vibes of compassion and equality and all that kind of stuff. But what, what is the framework that actually makes sense of those things? Because something institutional like Christianity has receded, we're kind of recognizing um, that we have vi vibes and no foundation. And, and more and more people are waking up to the fact that what used to hold us together was the Christian story, and maybe it's worth checking out again. Whether they're actually returning to church and actually checking that out is a separate question. It's not just Glenn Scrivener, Tom Holland, Ian Hersey Alley and Douglas Murray beginning to worry about where our moral vision will end up in the absence of the Christian story, I've been noticing more and more public intellectuals coming to similar conclusions, even as they remain personally agnostic on the God question. A good example is the influential philosopher John Gray, here speaking at a lecture for the University of Sheffield. I think the idea that there is, I think values and morality become problematical if you're a consistent free-thinking atheist. Not in the sense that you can do anything you want, necessarily, but in the sense that at least there are many moralities in the world, atheist and religious, not just one. None of them is uniquely or specially human. Human history isn't tending to produce 
one set of values rather than another. They're fighting it out and it's very contingent. Could happen one way or the other. And the idea that there's a special sort of, a special um, a realm of value, more important than self-interest, more important than beauty, more important than pleasure, more important than etc. aesthetics, um, I think is a hangover from Christianity. So that in a way, a free thinker now should not be criticizing or attacking religion of the old kind. A free thinker now should be asking, questioning humanity, questioning what values we have, uh, how we arrive at them, and how if we end up having different values, I mean, we like this group, how we live together, if we want to live together. That's a very important question, too. Um, the notion that we can move from a kind of getting rid of God, just like a kind of fairy tale, even in the past, and most things stay the same, morality stays the same, mostly stays the same. Um, um, we still concern ourselves the way Christianity at least taught them a practice fully with all human beings and maybe species beyond human beings, other animals. Uh, the idea that we shouldn't be selfish or that we should be selfish. All these ideas, I think, become open once we've really, if we really leave uh, uh, theism behind. And I just conclude by saying, I'm not saying that you should leave it behind. Maybe you should go back to it. Perhaps we should go back to theism, specifically Christian theism. And I believe that Tom Holland is a striking example of a significant public thinker pointing people back to the story that shaped them and who continues to be a thorn in the side of many secular humanists who would like to imagine we can live unmoored from our Christian roots. Holland brought this home near the end of his debate with A.C. Grayling when arguing that humanism depended on the Bible for its belief in human equality. I think the idea of, of humanism, the idea that humans have a kind of unique dignity, that um, have a kind of special status, ultimately I think it goes back to Genesis. I think it goes back to that narrative that God creates man and woman in his own image. And that is something that then passes through into the bloodstream of European culture and we to this day continue to take for granted and so the emphasis on the kind of the idea of the human the idea of the, of, of, of of the the, the uh, of human rights and the values and the dignity of humanity I think that this is a, a, a deeply Western and therefore a deeply Christian idea memorably to drive his point home Holland then reached down to retrieve a mystery item he had been holding on to and as kind of I just wanted to read a list mm. of um, of where international human um, uh, conferences have been held over the year. We have okay. Miami, we have Oxford, we have London, we have Oslo, we have Washington, we have Paris, we have Nord Wijkkerhout in the Netherlands, then we have Mumbai, then we have Mexico City, then we have Amsterdam, then we have Brussels, then we have Buffalo in the USA, we have Oslo, we have Hanover, we have London, we have Amsterdam, we have Boston, we have Paris, we have Oslo, we have London, we have Amsterdam. Mumbai aside, all of those are in countries that are deeply, you know, are predominantly Christian. In turn, most of those are Protestant. I think that in its essentials, humanism is a kind of a very soft Protestantism. It's, 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 it's a godless Protestantism. Mm -hmm. If I were able to, to identify um, 
uh, you know, focal humanistic traditions in non-Christian societies, then you might believe that humanism is something that could quite easily come out of uh, reflection and, and consideration. Um, so uh, it happened in classical antiquity in Greece. It happened in the in the thinking of, of uh, Aristotle and the post-Aristotelians, and that encapsulates something human that doesn't require myth. Doesn't require myth in the case of the Jains and the Buddhists and the Moists. It just requires a sense of our common shared humanity. But the idea that humans have rights, that they have a peculiar dignity, is a myth, and it seems to me so evident that this myth is is christian in its origins the idea that um you know you by cherry picking fragments from other cultural traditions you can demonstrate that the beliefs that you hold as someone living in london in 2019 you and all your fellow humanists all of whom with the single exception of of, of one city have all been held in basically christian countries you i mean this is you, you humanism is so derivative of Christianity and yet because like Christianity it wants to claim a universal mission just as 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 Christians claimed as evidence for this that you know Greek philosophy was part of its inheritance so likewise you are engaged in this mass exercise of cultural appropriation picking stuff to demonstrate that the entirely contingent views that you personally have and that I have too are somehow not bred of um, the, the culture in which we've emerged if you'd like to hear all of Tom Holland and AC Grayling's Sparky Clash, you can find the link to their premier unbelievable big conversation with our show notes. Having once found the Christian culture he grew up in boring compared to the glamour of ancient Rome and Greece, historian Tom Holland ultimately changed his mind about the influence of the greatest history maker of all, Jesus Christ. We'll trace more of Holland's own story and where he lands on the faith question in a couple of weeks' time. For now, I find myself bumping into more and more secular Western people asking similar questions, gradually realising that the air they breathe and the water they swim in is a product of the Christian revolution that shaped their world, and wondering aloud whether those values can be sustained in the absence of the Christian story. Perhaps, however, the difference is felt most keenly by those who were never raised in a culture already shaped by the Christian story. When they step into a world of equality, freedom and compassion, they immediately notice the difference in the air and the strange waters they're now swimming in. That's why I want to conclude today's episode with a conversation I recently had with Jenny. Jenny was raised in communist China, an officially atheist country, but came to the UK some years ago. Sitting in the nave of an Anglican church, she told me that she and many other Chinese expatriates came in search of a Western education and the hope of returning to China with better career prospects. But she and many others have chosen to stay. Jenny, who is married to a Brit and with children of her own, now calls the UK home. But we stayed and we were having a discussion uh, why we stayed. What made us stay, even though we're not making as much money? <laughs> and um, and we, we listed a lot of our reasons. And uh, most of the reasons why, you know, this country is more is run in a more humane way. And uh, there's less corruption, well, almost no visible corruption. And uh, people are kinder. 
people help the poor, people help the strangers, and uh, lots of charities, lots of organized charities uh, going on all the time. And um, so we, we, that's, that's all the reasons we came up with. And then someone just said, why is this, why is England, why is the UK like this? And, and we didn't know why, even though we've lived here for 23 years, because we, we, we are, you know, the result of, a, of, a, of a atheist education. So religion is our blind spot. We, we wouldn't know where to look for that. Mm. So we, we, we just thought, oh, because it, it just it is, it's just a way. British Something in are. the water is your Something. husband. <laughs> yeah, I said to my husband, I said, uh, we come to a conclusion that this land just grow, grow nice people like it grows nice fruit. What little folk religion Jenny had been exposed to growing up in China had only reinforced her belief that God was a myth. But in recent years, seeing the depressing state of the world, she began looking for something to ground her own beliefs. She had become attracted to the traditional values of Christianity, but knew she couldn't believe in something that she knew was a superstition. Then one day, she heard about the concept of an atheist church, a place where people went to find community, to sing and to learn how to be kind, but without any religious beliefs involved. That evening, she decided to investigate further. I thought, oh, if I can have Christianity without a super superstition part, that would be like the best thing in, in the world for me. So I started people looking for atheist church and I found one on Google. And I think about that night as, 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 a, as a sequence. I found, I was Googling atheist church and I found one in London. And under that Google result, there's an article titled Why Atheist Church Wouldn't Work. And, uh, and I was like, they all poured cold water on my, on, my, on my new ideas. And I just thought, okay, I clicked through, and it, it made so much sense to me why it wouldn't work. Because they were looking for something spiritual, but they, at the same time, they tried to throw away the spirituality of it. Uh, they were looking for something transcendent, but at the same time, they they want to deny that transcendence. The online article that had dashed cold water on Jenny's hopes of an atheist church turned out to be the text of a sermon. So I didn't realise, actually, I was reading a sermon um, by, a, by a pastor called uh, Andrew Haslam. Uh, so I was reading sermon after sermon, and it was they say so... It's also in intelligent, so makes so much sense. Everything he said makes so much sense. And, uh, and I said to my husband the next day, I said, I've been reading sermon all night. He said, what? He said, I thought, I thought you were looking for, for atheist church. <laughs> and I found, that, I found the, the, the real church instead. I was reading sermon. And then I carried on reading these blogs for a couple of days. And then he said, uh, oh, if you, if you would like to know more about religion, if you are a non-believer or any, from any background, go and read C.S. Lewis, The Mere Christianity. And uh, C.S. Lewis, um, that, because we had just finished watching the, 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 the Narnia films, 
we didn't know it was he had a Christian message in it, even though even though uh, my husband uh, he, he was a church choir boy. So C.S. Lewis, his name pop, pop up on this on this blog post, and I thought, oh, I didn't know he writes about Christianity. <laughs> and uh, and I bought the, the mere Christianity, and I was like, uh, that was like a, a, a light turned on. There was a door opened for me. It, it didn't. It didn't change me, convert me, but it, it smashed my atheism into pieces. So between stumbling across a pastor's sermons online, watching Narnia, reading Mere Christianity, you were on this journey that, uh, to that point at least, convinced you that, oh, my atheism Did doesn't, didn't, didn't answer the, the way, it didn't yes. hold water, as you say. Yes. But obviously you weren't, as you say, converted at that point. You Perhaps you'd come to question your atheism. Mm-hmm. What, what led you on the next stage? Which is a very recent thing as well, by the way. This, this, this has all happened in the last few months, really. Yes. Um, I think the next stage, I, I, I have to thank you largely for that. <laughs> because um, I found uh, the, the, the... Well, I started looking for atheism and uh, Christianity, you know, started digging around. And I found the, the unbelievable um, podcast. And it's, it's like a it's like a hitting the jackpot for me. <laughs> and I remember binge watching, binge listening every day. And I couldn't, I couldn't stop talking about it. And my husband said, what's going on? What's happening to you? And I said, oh, why is nobody talking about this? Because this is the biggest question of our life. If there's a God and he created all of us, why is nobody even interested in finding out if it's true or not? And, uh, and I, I, yeah, my mind was uh, on fire. I kept listening to all the debates. The more I listened, the, the more I was convinced that there was, there was a God. And, uh, and the, 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 the atheist debate, they didn't, they, they pushed me actually to the, to, the, to the other direction. During this intellectual journey, it began to dawn on Jenny that there was an explanation for the freedoms and values she enjoyed in the UK compared to the communist regime in China. It wasn't just something in the water, it was the Christian heritage that had shaped the country she now called home. And it made her look at the God debates between new atheists and Christians very differently. Uh, I think a lot of like, like Richard Dawkins, I watch him debating with um, uh, John Lennox. And I look at him sitting there, a complete product of a Christian society. And I want to shout at him. I wanted to shout at him that you could not have been a product of my country because he is questioning uh, whether this God is a good God. He is using, he is very Christian, very humane, very, you know, uh, this, this, everybody is equal, this, this sort of value to challenge God. And uh, where did he get these values from? He wouldn't have got these values if he was a boy in China. He would have thought, oh, yeah, that's God. He's high up there. He's the boss. Uh, everything he does is, you know, is unquestionable. Really. So even in a sense, Richard Dawkins' atheism, you felt, was a product of the Judeo-Christian heritage he was part well, of? Well, I, I think people say, 
actions speak louder than words. I think Richard Dawkins, he's a, he's a walking example of a Christian to me. <laughs> um, because I compare, I come from a place where there's, there was no Christian growing up, but we never, we never had any, never took hold. So I came from a place where there was no Christian, very, very minimal effect uh, of Christian influence. And I look at Richard Dawkins, he's totally a product of, of a Christian society. Mm-hmm. So he, he actually disapproved his own, own opinion to me. At the time of recording, Jenny finds herself standing on the verge of embracing Christian faith. Well, I'm pretty sure I haven't haven't been baptized yet. <laughs> and I wanted to to give other religion a chance. Sort of, I sort of did a bit of shop shop around, <laughs> and um, I thought the Bible actually is makes the most sense to me. Mm. And uh, I think I'm going to be a Christian. Uh, but I haven't, I haven't uh, done it yet because I'm still really reading the Bible and I want to finish reading Bible <laughs> <laughs> because I want, to, I want to be able to say I, I didn't follow blindly. I read all God's words and then I made my decision. Like so many we've heard from already, Jenny too wonders what the future of her adopted home will look like without the Christian story that shaped it. If you just cut it off now, uh, it will take a while for all this to disappear. Yes. Just like the, the, the ancient Greeks, the Romans, now they only belong to the museum. And one day, if if Christianity, if all these uh, values about we are created equal in God's image, and all these values, if one day you can only see them in the museums, uh, I, I really hate to think of what sort of society this society would be. I, what comes to mind is, is my, the, the China I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, is the vacuum, the vacuum of a of a higher power, the lack of a higher power, um, that you only worship what is immediately within your grasp. You only worship money. Money is the only thing that works, that's a lubricant mm. and power. So, so you only worship these things. And, uh, and uh, we probably will get populist government to say what people want to hear become elected and then do what they want yeah. with no moral standards, nothing. Yeah. Because because I think as humans, we need something higher up there. And if you get rid of that, everything else comes in. Yeah. Something will always try to take hold of you, trying to control you. Yeah. So I think God is a better choice. I was so glad to sit down with Jenny and hear her story. Contrast is often the mother of clarity, and Jenny's own journey from an officially atheist country to a West still living on the embers of the Christian story brought home just how rare and precious this gift of a Christian heritage is. As we continue this third act of our podcast in coming weeks, we'll dive deeper into the way Christianity shaped our modern views on sex, family, compassion and equality 
But it's not just public intellectuals recognizing this. I believe that many other ordinary people are beginning to realize that the values they cherish were cultivated in unique soil. For some, like Jenny, it has brought them back to embracing the original story that led to the flowering of equality, compassion, freedom and progress. Could it do so for many more in the future? You've been listening to the surprising rebirth of belief in God, telling the story of how new atheism grew old and secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. This podcast series is also a book. You can read the first chapter for free when you join my newsletter at justinbriarley.com, where you can also order the book or get a signed copy. Patreon supporters get early access to new episodes of the podcast, plus bonus content. Find out more and about other ways to support this show at justinbriarley.com. Material from The Big Conversation was used by kind permission of Premier. Visit premierunbelievable.com for full shows. Coming up next time. The idea that women's vulnerability is not something to be despised, but is something to be protected. That is basically a fundamentally Christian idea. Why Louise Perry changed her mind about the sexual revolution. Today's episode was a production of Think Faith in partnership with Genexis and with support from the Jerusalem Trust, editing assistance by Isaac Simmons. You can find links to the book and all our featured guests with the show notes. Finally, as ever, please do subscribe to this podcast, do rate, review us and share it on social media. It really helps others to discover the surprising rebirth of belief in God. Plus, you can get the next episode that you just heard a clip from a whole week early when you support at justinbriley.com. Again, the link is with today's show. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Just before I let you go, I had this lovely review from Chrissy saying, so good. I've literally consumed this podcast in three days. I've sent it to all my friends from various backgrounds. I pray you guys continue the amazing work and keep those episodes coming. Leaving a review like Chrissy really helps others to discover the show. But if you'd really like to help me keep those episodes coming, why not consider supporting the show or buying the book that this podcast is based on? The links are with today's show or visit justinbriley.com. See you at the next episode.